Good morning, church. Good morning, Zach. Good morning, Zach. Good to see you guys. Yeah, me too. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Zach. And uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning. We uh, are in the middle of a teaching series called Wonder. Everyone say wonder. Wonder. And so we've been talking, we've been traversing the scripture and hopefully the, the vision that's on the heart of Jesus to be awakened to worship, to be awakened to worship. And today we are going to talk about this very biblical, but in our modern context, sort of like misunderstood um, concept, and that is sacrificial worship, sacrificial worship. Would you guys do me a favor? I know you just were standing, but would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And maybe just before we jump into the word here, just take a deep breath in, just relax. Allow God to center our scattered senses. In Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Create in me a pure heart. Psalmist says. In the last line, grant me a willing spirit. <laughs> Today I want to talk about these two things, the heart and willing spirit, particularly through the lens, as I mentioned, the biblical lens of sacrificial worship. So what is the heart? What is the heart? Why does it matter? And sacrificial worship, what is this all about? Is it an old antiquated concept from an old covenant or something like that, or is it most, the, the most relevant and significant thing that God is asking us to do? The heart and sacrificial worship. So, let's jump in with the heart. But before we do, let's just pray. Just so much prayer. Prayer everywhere. Let's go. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we love you. We worship you. We yield to you. In the midst of all of the challenges to even get here or to my team to assemble in, in light of certain challenges, Lord, technology, whatever the case may be, we just come and we yield to your Holy Spirit. Yes. And we ask you to illuminate the word, the truth that we stand on, that directs our path, that lights our way. We trust you. Would you speak today? We ask for the supernatural as well, God. Give us, let this soil be ripe and tender to encounter the supernatural, for healing and miracles to take place, yes. for conversion and truth to emanate. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So I want to continue here with a question. The question, this question can be asked in different ways. But underneath it all, I want to ask this question. What is the number one thing that God wants from me? Those are good. Love. Yeah. Uh-huh. Those are good. Let's say uh, prayer and Bible reading. Sounds, sounds good. 
let's say, maybe to go to church <laughs> and be in community. God wants us to do these things, number one thing. Maybe it's to serve the poor. Maybe it's to share the gospel and make disciples. Maybe it's to be generous with our time and with our money, right? These things are good, <laughs> but they're not the number one thing. Someone actually mentioned it. And don't get me wrong, these things are good. They are essential. In fact, they are the fundamental sort of like pieces of a healthy Christian life. But the number one thing that God is after, as someone said earlier, is your heart. Your heart. All things, all those things mentioned in worship and love and all those things flow from a heart that's yielded and surrendered to God. Is the, the, the symptom of a surrendered heart are all those things and much more. All these things flow from this place. Have you guys ever been to a doctor? I hope, I hope so. <laughs> Have you been to a doctor recently? Whether it's like a checkup or a physical or whatever the case may be. What's the first thing that they do? <clears throat> they check your vitals. That's right. They'll get the doctor will get the stethoscope and the doctor will be like, okay, just relax. Just gonna check your heart. Then it gets all quiet. And honestly, if something's wrong with your heart, nothing in the checkup really matters at the point where like, it doesn't matter as much. The doctor's like, there's something wrong with your heart, we need to attend to this right now. Right? That's what the doctor probably will do. The heart is always checked first. And side note, just as a little like anecdote of heavenly information, I think, is the stethoscope, can't pronounce that, the stethoscope was invented by a Christian man. Did you know that? And so with modesty, you can hear a woman's heartbeat without having to put his head on her chest. Just another way Christians have influenced medicine and technology. It's beautiful. Along with the hospital movement, medical ethics, rural missions, even the development of the practice of nursing, all influenced by Christians. Bless God. So good. So the heart. Throughout the Bible, this idea of the heart is used over a thousand times. And so get your Bibles out. We're going to go through those. Just kidding. No, no. But I think it's important for us to notice that the Bible describes the reality of the heart in a lot of different ways. However, it's essentially the center of who you are. It's the center of who you are. The heart is the center of your being. Look how Dallas Willard puts it. Life must be organized by the heart if it is to be organized at all. It can be pulled together only from the inside. That is the function of the heart, spirit, or will. To organize our life as, as a whole, and indeed to organize it around God. A great part of the disaster of contemporary life lies in the fact that is organized around our human feelings, not around God. What a line. A great part of the disaster of contemporary life lies in the fact that it is organized around human feelings and not around God. Here's what the Bible says about the heart. One of the things. It says that without God, people have wicked hearts. Hearts that are marked by hardness, and deceit. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, 
The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You know, I think if we're honest, if we just like reflect on this, we don't really like to talk about this stuff in our culture. I think for most of us, our tendency, like it's hard to admit that about our own heart. I don't know about you. So as a byproduct, as a mechanism to avoid that kind of revelation or admission, we sort of blame other people. There's a lot of issues in the world. It's not my heart. It's that person. It's that group. Or maybe it's that situation in our society. That's the thing that is the origin of our problems. But what I think we need is for us to be a people, for God to raise up a people that stand up and say courageously, you know what the problem is? It's wicked hearts. And without God, minus two. Minus two. It's got a really encouraging message for you today. I think of the old hymn, Come Thou Fount. I grew up singing this song. And there's the, in the third verse, it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it with thy spirit from above. I don't know about you, but there's just this natural thrust to just wander from my maker, right? I don't know if you can relate. So God knows that we have this Propensity, right? He knows that this is sort of our reflex to wander and that we're prone to wickedness. And so he has set out a divine strategy to bring us back to himself and to purify our hearts. As the psalmist sings out, pure, purify our hearts and to pour, pour that purity that he then gives birth to and resurrects and forms within us and to pour that purity and goodness back into our marriage, back into our kids, back into our neighborhoods and into our places of work and into the world. This is the divine strategy, and I think this brings us to the divine strategy of sacrificial worship. You guys remember the surrender solution? I talked about it last week. This is sort of um, our map to help us navigate uh, life as a Christ follower. And so it's these, these sections here that sort of highlight different key components of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to make disciples. And so in the middle there, you'll, you'll notice love and obey. And that's really what worship is all about. So when you, you take a, a wholehearted love and obedience by faith, that, again, sits in the heart of a follower of Jesus in the center of your being. It's known as sacrificial worship. This is sacrificial worship. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Sacrificial worship, as you probably well know, is a very strong biblical concept and motif throughout the scripture. 
And it's something that we have to understand and try to understand and embrace. I think if you're like me, it's just like sacrifice. Like I don't even really have like a framework for that. Unless you're really, I don't know, like just you've grow up, grown up in the church and grown up with scripture. And so we're going to explore this, uh, this concept of sacrif- sacrificial worship through diving in, into a story. And we're going to do a lot of kind of Bible study together, okay? A little expository kind of walking through passage of scripture. And that's found in Genesis chapter 22. And so a quick, quick snapshot context. So God has created the world. Everything goes into chaos again. The fall takes place. And God chooses this man named Abraham to build an everlasting covenant with. A promise that from his line salvation will take place. And, and embedded and woven in this, this covenant, this story, is a deep longing and a crying out from Abraham and Sarah for a son. And they, they, weren't, they weren't able to have children. They're, they're late in years and they, they wanted a son and they cried out, but God said, I'm going to give you that son. And so they had to go through this process of waiting and longing. Like just waiting is hard, but how many of you guys know that God does some of his best work in the waiting, right? right. So this promise takes place, this covenant happens, and then Isaac is born. That's their son. And this promise is sort of coming to fruition through this little boy. And this is where we pick things up in chapter 22. Plot twist. Here we go. Verse 1. Genesis chapter 22. Verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Make note of the author just explaining that right off the bat. I don't want I, just, I don't want that to start with like my story. God tested Zach's faith. <laughs> Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. This must have been like a knife slowly going into the heart of Abraham. You want me to you want me to do what? The very son that I've been crying out for, the, the answer to my prayers, the symbol of your covenant. You want me to do, do this to the son that I love, my only son. And I don't know about you, I'd be like, I don't know if I heard the Lord right. I, I can't be God. I'm not hearing the voice of the Lord correct on this one. You're not even kidding me, right? Verse 3. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for fire, for a burnt offering, and set out for the place God had told him about. Soren Kierkegaard um, was a Danish theologian from the 19th century and also considered to be the father of existentialism. And he wrote a book uh, called Fear and Trembling. And the thesis of his book centered around the 22nd chapter of Genesis, the passage that we're reading. And so in this book, Kierkegaard would carefully look at the passage from one angle and from one aspect, and he would reflect and analyze 
And then he would go to the other side, a totally different perspective, and look. And, and with inquisitive like thoughtfulness would ask these questions of the author and of, of the text. And so one of the questions that he asked is, why does the author, this historian, poet, author of Genesis, write that Abraham got up early in the morning? Why did he do this? This is just a pointless detail. The author's just taking some like creative liberty here, just adding some nice, like, fill, fill, you know, fill in the gap with stuff. Or is it actually something really significant that he's pointing out about the language of why Abraham got up early in the morning? And so the first thought that he had, that Kierkegaard had, was maybe the author, through this language, is suggesting that by this time in Abraham's spiritual development, he was so sanctified. And so in love and trusting of God that no matter what God commanded, he would just respond immediately, getting up early in the morning. He set his iPhone and just like, break it on, I'm going for this, sacrificing my son. So spiritual. You know, it's, this is actually what the modern church often looks at Abraham and kind of like thinks that he's the father of faith, right? But this ends up sort of stripping Abraham of his humanity in a lot of ways. So there's another perspective. Kierkegaard looks at the other perspective and he's like, well, maybe the opposite is true. Maybe Abraham nearly went crazy that night, tossing and turning all night long. Could this be God? Is God really asking me to do this? This doesn't make sense. My heart is rejecting this. Can this be? Sleep must have been impossible. And so he gets out of bed and he saddles his donkey and he chops some wood for the burial fire that would be used for the sacrifice of his son. And we know from earlier chapters that Abraham, through the blessing of God, was extremely wealthy. And so he had servants for everything. Just literally everything. He was so, so wealthy. And so why does he choose to saddle his own donkey? Why does he choose to chop his own wood? He's, he's older. He's chopping wood. I think, I think that he chose to do these things. He could have had a servant do it, but I think he chose to do it himself. Almost as like small actions in the direction of obedience. So he saddled his donkey and he chopped the wood and taking out all of his emotion, just smashing and chopping the wood. Can this be true? All the churning and the wrestling and the rejection of it all, the resistance inside of him, just chopping the wood. And I think that in these actions, worship began. These were all these acts in the direction of worship. I wrote this, and I think it'll be up on the screen and for you visual people, but I wrote, sometimes you need to do small acts of faith and obedience in the direction of sacrifice. And on the way, God prepares and purifies your heart. It's in these places where we cultivate a willing spirit. And so I just want to affirm you guys. Like sometimes getting out of the house in the morning is like actually worship. 
Like it's like chopping wood or something, right? Like saddling the donkey and just getting here and driving here and just for you who have kids, it's just it's a it's a lot. Maybe it's like I'm just gonna turn my phone off on a Monday morning and I'm just gonna devote five minutes to silence and solitude with God. Like that is worship. I'm just I'm just gonna drive over to that place, or I'm just gonna give my time for team one. These are all acts of worship, and on the way, God does something. He prepares us for our destiny. On, in verse four, on the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told, his, told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there, and then we'll, we will come right back. You know, the first time that the English word worship appears in, in the Bible is right here in this, in this passage, in this, this verse, verse 5. So I think the author is sort of like winking at us, like, you want to know what worship's really like? Prepare yourself. Verse 6, so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide the sheep for the burnt offering, my son. And they both walked on together. We have to remember that God is our provider. And have faith in the midst of like confusion. God will provide. It's not something that we do on our own. It's not something that we self-generate. Verse 9. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. <coughs> then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. Can you imagine the situation? Isaac is laying fastened to this altar, right? The promised son, and Abraham raises the knife to plunge it into his heart. But spiritually speaking, I moved here. Spiritually speaking, God was allowing Abraham's heart to be plunged with a knife of sacrificial worship that would then purify his heart and bring him close. Let's continue in verse 11. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now, I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from, even, from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw, the, saw a ram caught by his horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham named this place, the Lord will provide. To this day, people will use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be Provided. I'm going to call um, my team up here. 
the mountain that he's referring to is called Moriah. We know that from verse 2, right? But where is it? Does anyone know where it is? We know from internal sources, from 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, and cross-referencing that with modern archaeology, the area of Mount Moriah is actually known as Jerusalem. And more particularly, Mount Zion. So the historic place that Abraham offered his son 1,800 years later is the same place that God offered his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, Jesus. He took him to the same mountain. It's the greatest story ever told. Takes him to the same mountain and allowed Jesus to be fastened to a vertical altar to be sacrificed. But this time, no one screamed from heaven, Stop. This time, the son was sacrificed on a cross, fulfilling the promise of God. To Abraham, I will provide the sacrifice. In a moment, we're going to have some time to respond and to worship and to take communion together and to remember Jesus and to literally ingest the vision of the gospel and to receive Jesus, to receive his sacrifice, oh Lord. And then to respond like Abraham. And as we do, it's maybe little acts, even just the very idea of getting up and getting the elements is the beginning. It's the chopping of wood. Maybe it's raising of hands. Maybe it's going on your knees. Maybe it's confession. Whatever the case may be for you, let's put the saddle on. Let's chop the wood. Let's be even willing to sacrifice, knowing that God is good and he's the one who provides the, the, the sacrifice. So my heart for us for the rest of the time is just allow the Holy Spirit to have his way for us to, to learn and lean on Jesus and learn from him and to respond like Abraham and then even respond like Jesus himself. This is the invitation of a Christian. And this, my friends, is wholehearted. This is wholehearted devotion. This is what it looks like. And this is what sacrificial worship looks like. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you're a good father. And somehow, I'm still learning from this passage, and I'm still seeing how deep it goes. And I'm learning that you treated Abraham as as a grown-up in this moment. Come and partake in the business that I plan to do for the cosmos, for the world, for you, for one chapel Lake Travis. Come and taste and see the depths of the revelation of the gospel and the power of the cross and the power of resurrection, the power that God will provide and he is our provider. So Lord, in this moment, we 
come to remember you, Jesus, that you laid on the cross, that you sacrificed yourself willingly for our sake. And so we're going to take these elements that represent your broken body and your spilled blood. So we commune with you. Holy Spirit, lead our thoughts. We come with gratitude and thanksgiving and praise. We love you in this place. In Jesus' name.